I'm not sure if it's as um, bad now as it was, but at one time, certainly, um, the question in the west of Scotland, where, where we are, the question, and where did you go to school? Well, it wasn't exactly an innocent question. Um, it wasn't always a, showing a great concern for your um, educational experience. Quite often it was an attempt to work out who you were, what tribe, what, what sect or sectarianism you, you belonged to. Were you with us or were you with them? Sometimes that was all that somebody wanted to know or somebody, all that somebody felt they needed to know. What school did you go to? We'd tell them everything. Um, many others didn't look at it as, as, as badly as, as that and as seriously as that. But for all of us, we are all influenced by, affected by where we came from. We're all influenced by and affected by our, our beginnings and our, and our roots. And that's true of Jesus of Nazareth as well. Oh, I don't mean what it was like in Nazareth. I don't even mean what it was like in, in um, Bethlehem where he was born. And I don't mean, um, you know, the, the influence of his big cousin, John the Baptist, taking him into, into public ministry. No, from Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus being in the very nature God. That is, His divinity, His godness wasn't, wasn't second-hand. It wasn't something passed on to Him. Sometimes at night time, you look out in the sky and you see the, the moon shining, but the moon's not really got any light of its own. What the moon's doing is reflecting sunlight. But that's not about what Jesus was doing. He wasn't reflecting Godness. He wasn't reflecting the Father's glory. He, verse 6 of Philippians 2, was very, in the very nature, he was God. He was every bit as much divine as a father. He didn't have to go on a course so that he could learn some godliness. He didn't have to do a, a probationary period to see if his divinity was up, up to it. No, he was very nature God, Philippians 2.6. It's a bit crude, I know, but suppose we could draw a line and at the one side of the line have creator and at the other side of the line have creation and creatures. Jesus is very definitely on the creator side. John's gospel in its very first verse tells us, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the rest of that chapter goes on to tell us a bit more about this Word and how He came in the flesh and how He was Jesus. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the very nature of God. And then remember that. Think of that great claim. And then let us go and, and look at the nativity scene. Nativity scenes, I suppose, will be sprouting up uh, um, all over the place in the next wee while. Go, go to that nativity scene and look in. What do you see in the manger? Not a wee baby with that little golden halo glow thing around its head that you get in some Christmas cards. No, no, Jesus didn't look like that. What you would see is just a little, weak, fragile, helpless baby. One who cannot get any comfort for himself. One who cannot speak, can only cry. He needs his mother's arms and his mother's breast to reassure him. And then hang around for a bit longer and you'll probably see Mary having to wipe away some sick and then do whatever was the first century equivalent of a nappy change. 
And I stick around a wee bit longer after that, and you'll see Mary and Joseph up half the night trying to get him to sleep. As this baby was as restless and as unsettled as all the other babies. And all the while, that baby, that weak, helpless, crying out for mother's milk, dirtying nappies, baby is the very nature God. As one of our Christmas carols puts it, low within the manger lies he who built the starry skies. And, and that's the astonishing claim of Christmas. That's the astonishing claim about the birth of Jesus, that while still being in the very nature God, not reflecting something God from somewhere or something else, but being in the very nature of God, he was at the same time still one of us and had united himself to us in all our weakness and fragility. And that verse in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, goes on to say that Jesus didn't do that for his own sake. He did not consider with equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't need to shore himself up. There was, he was already perfect. He was without need, not dependent on anything or anyone else. And Jesus didn't use that godness to suit himself. He didn't look at his dinner plate and then think, oh, a wee bit hungrier tonight, I'll just put a wee bit more magic up a wee bit more onto the plate. He didn't put back together things that he'd maybe broken. Jesus encounters with, with Satan in the wilderness, and we're told about them in Matthew 4 and, and in Luke 4. When Jesus encountered Satan and was tempted, he resisted, and, and in resisting, he's saying he was not going to use his power for self-advantage. He was not going to turn stone into bread. He wasn't going to use his power to make a big show that would have people going, wow. He wasn't going to do that. I wonder, I wonder if you and I would be able to hold ourselves in check like that. I wonder if we, if we were in very nature God and had that kind of power. You know, would we maybe put a few extra chips on the plate? Could we maybe rescue the dinner that we had burnt and undo that and, and make it fine? If we were sending somebody a birthday card and we knew it was going to arrive a day late, would we somehow speed up the process to get that card there in time? You know, what harm would it do? We've still paid for the stamp. You know, who's going to be put out here? But the thing is, Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't use his power for his own advantage. I couldn't be sure that I would never do anything like that. I couldn't be sure that I wouldn't sort of want to cut a corner or three or four or five. And of course, once you've done it once, it's so much easier to do it again and again and again. Jesus didn't. Well, being in the very nature of God, he did not use that for his own advantage. Instead, we're told, verse 7, he became a servant. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And notice that, verse 6, very nature God, verse 7, very nature servant. 
His serving was just as real, just as much part of him as his being God. Serving others was not some kind of act that Jesus put on. He was not thinking, you know, if I, if I you know, serve somebody here, I'm going, it's going to make a good impression. He was not doing it just as some demonstration for us to copy, although he did want us to do that, and we'll come back to that. And indeed, we were partly looking at that last week when George was speaking to us. But here, instead of grasping, we're told, Jesus, let's go. Instead of tightening his grip and all the advantages of being God, he emptied himself. Instead of pulling his majesty tightly around himself, he took off his glory and became a servant. Nobody would be able to stop him doing as he pleased, but he was more interested in serving. And he didn't do that just from time to time or when there was nothing to, to lose. He didn't just serve when he well, wasn't too tired and when he, or when he knew it would be appreciated or when he knew there would be a favor or two that he could call in. It wasn't anything calculated like that. It wasn't anything with an ulterior motive. It was not something half-hearted. It was servanthood, verse 7 of Philippians 2, in its very nature. There, as he said in the passage in Mark that Valerie read to us, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And that way of living that, of, that we're more familiar with about trying to get things for ourselves and so on, Jesus spoke about that in that passage in Mark with his disciples and said, you're not to be like that. That way of trying to make yourself important, that way of counting yourself as better, of making yourself seem more significant, that, that way of getting perks and getting influence so that you can get people to do what you would like them to do and so, so on. Jesus turned all of that on its head. But notice, he was not just contrasting his way and this other way of grabbing power. He was undoing the very sin of humanity. Back in the opening chapters in Genesis, when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, they did grasp. They gave in to the lie of Satan, you know, who said to them, verse 5 in Genesis 3, go on, eat of that tree. God said not to do it just because you're going to be equal with him when you do it. Go on, help yourself. Ah, been equal with God. Hmm. Quite fancy. Do you not fancy that, Eve? I quite fancy that. And the cake and the grasp. In contrast, we're being told Jesus laid aside. They wanted to get equal with God, but we're told that Jesus, although he had equality with God, verse 6, he didn't say he was going to use it for himself, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Here is Jesus undoing not just the penalty of sin, but also the way of sin. As the Son of God, and who is God in His very nature, takes on servanthood in His very nature and says, this is how we're going to do it. This is how we're to be. Two things, two things in conclusion. One, we're going to finish um, the service later on this morning. We're going to finish our service with a hymn, Meekness and Majesty with its declaration of how Jesus combined both meekness and majesty, the very nature of God and the very nature of servanthood. And that hymn finishes with a declaration. It finishes with the acclaim saying, this is our God. 
So then is it? Are you stunned time and again by the realization that this is who our God is? Does that stop you ever in your tracks? If not, why not? Well, he might, he might leave um, Barcelona at the end of this season, we're told, but su suppose Lionel Messi does that and then signs for Isco Bride and playing his football next year up at the K Park. Everyone will be stunned. What's going on? Why has he done that? He could have gone this place. He could have gone that way. He could be making this money. He could be making that money. What's he doing? Well, that's nothing compared with what Jesus did. Though he was in the very nature of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself and took the nature of a servant. We don't understand that fully. We don't understand that completely. Of course we don't. But if anyone's a Christian, they'll understand it enough to go, what? Really? And not just do that at the time when we become Christians, but there'll be times just as we go through life and reflect on who this is. This is our God. And so one of the key marks of the Christian life then is that the gospel will really gobsmack you. And the gospel which gobsmacks you will leave you in the place of saying thank you and, and living a life out of gratitude so that the Christian life doesn't become something of rules to keep, something you must try harder and do better. Rather, it's a life lived in thankfulness and gratitude to God who did that for us. Well, that's firstly, meekness and majesty, being wowed by the gospel. Secondly, then, is the question, will we then join Jesus in this way of being, this way of living? He did give it to us as an example. This is what kingdom life and kingdom living will look like in the kingdom of God. What it means to be a follower, a disciple, is to go the way of Jesus, to take up the cross and follow. And Jesus showed himself to be God, not just when he was healing lepers, not just when he was feeding thousands with a few loaves and fish. Jesus was showing himself to be God when he stooped and served. When he said to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. When he picked up the fallen, when he gave encouragement to the discouraged, when he, when he went to the house of the incredibly unpopular Zacchaeus and and had dinner with them. Jesus was being God in all those ways too. The world has seen too much of the grasping, grabbing way that Jesus talks about in Mark 10 at 41 and 42. And very sadly, we have to say that far too often the church has been complicit in that taking power, wanting a seat at the top table, and, and so on. But it's not the way of Jesus. There is no Savior, there is no Messiah other than the one 
who rebuked James and John, Mark 10, and then who summed up his purpose as not being served, but serving. There is no other Jesus than that one who said he was giving his life as a ransom for others. And so, if we want to receive the forgiveness from sin, if we want to receive what Jesus longs to give us, then we have no choice but to follow. There is no other Jesus other than that one who was in his very nature God, and then in very nature became a servant. This is our God. Make sure it's yours. It's not enough just to smile on from a distance as we hear a nice wee story about a child being born, about some shepherds and wise travelers turning up. That baby grew up and said, if you want to follow me, take up my cross daily and follow. Let us pray. Gracious God, we don't easily or normally find meekness and majesty coming together. We don't find readily that combination of being God and being a servant, of being great and yet embracing weakness. And yet here is the way that you come to us. Coming to us in a way that we'd be able to take in, that we would be able to understand as you got down on the floor and played with us and spoke to us in our, our baby tongue, as it were. And you did that in order to be able to pick us up and take us right into the heart of God himself. Lord, help us never to say, oh yeah, I know that story. I know the details, or I know the formula, God becoming human, and so on. Rather, might it continually thrill us, excite us, move us, challenge us, and, 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 and send us into lives of gratitude that you did that for us. And help us, too, to go the way of such a Savior, of such a Messiah, May our deepest desire not be, to, not be to be served, but rather to serve. In Jesus' name.